All right, praise God. Okay, open up your Bibles now to Deuteronomy 18, Psalm 110, and Isaiah 9. We normally only focus upon one Bible passage per Sunday, but today we're going to be looking at a few different ones. If you're here in person, you'll see all of them on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. But Deuteronomy 18, 18, Psalm 110, 4, and then Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. This is God's word. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then finally, Isaiah 9.6-7. through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory and we thank you so much for this gathering. We thank you, Father, for the rapidly approaching Christmas day. Lord, we know that that was not the actual day you were born, but Lord, that is the day that the entire world has decided to celebrate your birthday. And so, Lord, I believe you receive it. And I pray and ask that as we draw near to that day, that you would, Father God, draw us closer to you, that we would worship you, that we would spend our days remaining just thinking about you, reading scripture, hearing the stories again that are so familiar, yet make them fresh. Father, help us to draw near to your son. Jesus, help us to be near you during this season. We thank you. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for everyone joining us online. Be with those who are traveling, who are back home, away. Father God, you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, today we're going to be continuing our new series for Advent. And Advent is a season leading up to Christmas Day. It's a tradition that the church has kept for a long time. And it's basically a time of reflection and preparation to worship Christ on Christmas Day. And like I just prayed, it's a time to draw near to Christ. So what better opportunity than to re-jump, restart your relationship with God during Advent. So in the spirit of this season, I want to begin another sermon to help us to draw closer to Christ, to see him and to know him again, but from a different perspective. But we started this last Sunday and we're going to continue today. But the perspective I'm talking about, a different perspective to draw closer to Christ is looking at Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ. So Old Testament prophecies Because when Jesus came here at his first coming, he fulfilled a ton of prophecies. Bible scholars went through scripture and actually counted them up. And there are about 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. Prophecies that were beyond his control, humanly speaking. So we're talking about things like what lineage he would be born through. Where he would be born. How he would be born. The circumstances around his birth how he would be executed when he died. But these are all prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and the odds of one man fulfilling even just a handful of these are astronomically small. So this is nearly impossible that Jesus would fulfill all of them. And so this is one of the unique features of the Bible, but the Bible is the only book, the only religious book, and I studied some of the other ones we had to in seminary, but this is the only book written outside of our space and time and predicts the future. The Bible is the only book that does that. Other religious texts do not claim that. Only the Bible claims to know the future, and that's because God has written it. God is beyond our space and time. And so this alone is worth studying. It is a a wonder to know what these prophecies are and to see their fulfillment in Jesus. That brings credibility to who Jesus is. But that is not the main reason why we're looking at Old Testament prophecies during this time. But the main reason why I want us to look at these is because the Old Testament gives us a fuller and richer picture of Jesus that we just can't get from the New Testament alone. 
See, if your whole life, if you've only read the New Testament to know who Jesus is, then you have a decent picture, but you don't have the full picture. You don't have a richer picture. And that's because the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus himself made this point to the religious leaders. He said, you search the scriptures, which is our Old Testament, by the way. You search the scriptures daily because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they bear witness about me. See, if you read the Old Testament your whole life, and he's talking to the Jewish leaders, but you don't see me, you've missed the whole point. This is what Jesus said. So the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus through prophecies and symbols and types and figures, all the different stories, they all point to Jesus. So there are incredible insights in the Old Testament on who Jesus would be, what Jesus would do when he finally came. The Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes, to quote Christopher Wright. So last week we saw how this is literally true when it comes to Jesus' lineage, but Jesus actually came from somewhere. I said this several times last week, but he's not an alien that just floated down and then he floated back up to heaven. But he actually came from somewhere. And so all the descendants of Abraham, down through Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, a lineage that included more than a few Gentile women, all of that was headed somewhere. Where was all of that lineage headed towards? Jesus. Jesus was the culmination of that lineage. So again, the Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes. So during Advent and beyond, here's an important way that we can know our Savior better. This is one way that you can draw closer to Jesus. Read your Old Testament. I want to encourage you. There is much more to know about Jesus than the four Gospels and the letters of Paul. Amen? There's more about Jesus than that. There's more to read during Advent than just the first few chapters in Luke. I know we love to read those passages and they're very special. I remember one Advent season when I was in college, I was at a McDonald's eating lunch, reading the first few chapters of Luke, and I don't know what happened to this. The spirit overcame me. I just started crying into my french fries and just like, Jesus, you did this, right? You did this for us. But, but, but there's so much more than that, right? God has given us an entire book, especially the Old Testament, to illustrate, to clarify, to deepen our understanding of who Jesus is. So, for example, if you met someone and wanted to know them better and you wanted to draw closer to them, okay, what are some ways that you could do that? Well, one way you wouldn't know them better is if you ignore completely their family, their cultural background, where they came from. If you never at one point met your friend's parents or their grandparents, you never once visited their hometown or visited where they grew up, then you would be missing an enormous part of who they are, right? Well, that is essentially what happens to Christians who ignore the Old Testament. They are missing an enormous part of who Jesus is. So this is why we're looking at Old Testament prophecies during Advent. And today I want to look at something different. Last week we looked at Jesus' lineage, the Old Testament prophecies on his lineage. And today I want to look at the Old Testament prophecies about his roles, his official roles. And in particular I'm talking about his role as prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. The verses we read earlier are clear prophecies. These were written thousands of years before Jesus even came about what roles the Messiah would have. It couldn't be clear. So first, God prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.18. This is God speaking. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. By the way, when Jesus was finally here, that's exactly what he said in John 16. That's exactly what he said in John 17. I've given you all the words God the Father has commanded me, given to me, I gave them to you. It's exactly what Jesus said. God said, one day, a special prophet is going to come like you, Moses, among the Israelites. He's going to be like a brother. He's going to be a brother. And he will say everything I command him. So what does this mean? Messiah will be a prophet. Next, David prophesied in Psalm 110.4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here David is speaking about the Messiah again because at the very top of that psalm, David starts out by saying what? My Lord or the Lord says to my Lord. 
In other words, the Lord, God the Father, says to my Lord, the Messiah, and then he goes into this whole psalm, and in verse 4 he says, you are, okay, the Lord says this, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is what the Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah. You're going to be a priest forever, like Melchizedek. And we're not going to get into this today, we don't have time, but Melchizedek was this very bizarre figure who had no background, no history, no lineage, didn't have a family. He just appears out of nowhere in Genesis. He enters the story of Abraham and he blesses Abraham. And he does a sacrifice for Abraham. And Abraham says, you're the greater one because the greater one blesses the lesser one, not the other way around. So Melchizedek was a great person who blessed Abraham. But he came out of nowhere. We didn't know who he is. The Bible simply calls him the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. Who is this? It was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ, an early incarnation of him. So the Messiah would be what? A priest. He will also be a priest. This was David's prophecy. And then Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for to us a child is born. Some Jewish scholars, rabbis say, no, this is talking about not the Messiah. This is just an earthly king. It can't be. That cannot be it. They're just trying to avoid the inevitable. This is not an earthly king. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And why can he not be an earthly king? Listen to his names. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That is blasphemy. No human king is called mighty God. Everlasting father, another divine name, prince of peace. This is clearly somebody divine. This is the Messiah. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So what does this mean? Messiah will also be what? A king. So do you see these prophecies? These are written thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus even came. So the Bible, the Old Testament was very clear. This special person is coming, and he's going to do great things. He's actually going to change the entire world and usher in the kingdom of God. And this special person is going to have three clear roles, and this is how you're going to know him. He will be a prophet, a priest, and a king. And theologians notice these roles or offices early on in church history. Okay, We're not the first to discover this. But it wasn't until John Calvin that it was really brought front and center. John Calvin really made this prominent. But when he studied Christ and studied the word, he noticed how these three roles or offices are woven all throughout the Bible. So it goes all the way back to the very beginning. He actually notices the three roles right from the beginning in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve fell. But you can go back there and try to find them. But it's right from the beginning all the way to the functioning of the church even in the New Testament, all the way to the end of all things when Jesus comes back. All three of those roles are alive and active all throughout Scripture. So this is why Calvin focused in on it so much and why he taught on it. And so we should know this too, amen? We should know this. But more importantly, here's why I want us to know it. Here's another way you can know your Savior. Here's another way you can understand and know Jesus the Lord. How do you draw closer to Jesus? Is it just some experience you're going to have? You drive in your car, listening to praise music? Yes. That is one way you draw near to him, worship him, pray to him. But how are you going to get to know him truly? You got to know his background. You got to know what he came to do. You got to understand details about who he is. And the Bible is clear. Again, he is not an anonymous John Doe, but he came through a specific lineage. And when he came, he had a specific function, three in fact. He came as prophet, priest, and king. And so there are few things that are more important than this. If you want to know Jesus, you must know that he is a prophet, priest, and king. And so today what I want to look at is why these things are so needed. There's a great need when it comes to these three roles. And then I want to look at their great final fulfillment which you already know is in Christ, and then finally their ongoing work. So their great need, their final fulfillment, and their ongoing work. So first, their great need. Their great need. There's a reason why God established these three offices. Now, when God set up the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, he set it up to be a representation of the kingdom, of his kingdom on earth. 
So that's why you can't model the U.S. or other countries after Israel. Because no other country was supposed to represent God's kingdom on the earth. But Israel did. It was supposed to represent God's kingdom. And within his kingdom, this is very important, God has three very important offices. These are roles that people held. But three offices that God gave to the Israelites. These were the offices of prophet, priest, and king. So briefly, let me just describe what they are. But the prophet was a herald. He was a messenger of God's word. But he was more than that. He was also a teacher. He was an instructor of God's word. And his primary job was to give God's word to God's people. So the prophet did what? He represented God to the people. That was the prophet. Now in contrast, the second office, the priest, had had the exact opposite job from the prophet. Because the prophet represented God to the people, but the priest did what? Represented the people, all of us, to God. He represented the people before God. So he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people so that God would forgive them of their sins. He also prayed for the people, bringing their needs before God. And and the priest would also lead people in praising God. So in a way, I guess you could say the worship leader at our church is a priest. Well, we're all priests. I'll mention that later. But that's what the priest did. But he represented the people before God. And so the priest's job was to lead the people into God's presence and represent them before God. So this was another critical office that God established. And then third, finally, there was the king. And the king was given authority to rule and lead the people. His authority was not his own. It didn't come from himself, but it came from God. So Israel's king was supposed to represent God to the people just like the prophet. But there was a difference. Unlike the prophet, his job was not to deliver and bring God's word. That was not the king's job. But rather, his job was to uphold and enforce God's word. So once the prophet declared the word of God, like Moses or Jeremiah or Isaiah, now they have it all written down. Now the king was to enforce that. He was to hold the people accountable to God's word, to God's law. And like God, the king also had another role, but he was to be a servant because God was a servant king. So the human king in Israel was to represent God by serving the people. How? He was given authority to serve them, to protect them, to provide, to bring order, to defend, and at times, if necessary, to even fight for the people. So his authority was not to abuse the people, take advantage of the people, but it was to serve the people. So is that clear? These are the three key offices that God established within Israel, which represented his kingdom. So why did God do that? Why did God establish these three key offices? Well, here's why. It was in order to meet their greatest needs. It was in order to meet their greatest needs. And by the way, also to meet our greatest needs. And so this is one way to understand the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is the realm where God meets our greatest needs. Okay, why do we want to invite people into the kingdom of God? Why, why do we want them to know God and to be a part of his kingdom? Because the kingdom of God is where God meets our greatest needs. I like how E. Stanley Jones, the famous missionary, said it. But he said the kingdom is God's total answer to man's total need. Do you want to know the answer to life? You want to know where all your deepest, most profound, greatest needs are met? The kingdom of God. There's your answer. (laughs) Simple, right? We're done. But it's the kingdom of God. It is God's total answer to man's total need. But how can God's total answer to our total need come to us? Well, here's here's the secret. Here's the amazing thing about these roles. It came through these offices of prophet, priest, and king. This is why God established these offices. Because God knew in his sovereign wisdom, my people, once I gather them into a people, they're going to represent my kingdom on the earth. They're going to have profound needs. And by the way, they're all the same needs we have today in life. They're going to have profound, desperate, urgent needs. And here's how I'm going to meet them through these different offices, prophet, priest, and king. Now, if you were to ask people on the street today, what roles or jobs in our society do you think are the most important? 
to meet people's needs. So what do you think are important? I bet you, I'm sure of it, that you're going to get a wide variety of answers. So for example, I would imagine some people would say, you know what, I think teachers are very important. We need teachers to meet our needs, right? Educate the future. Computer programmers, I mean, what doesn't run on computers these days, right? We need computer programmers, we need scientists, we need engineers, the police, doctors, right? These are the jobs that I'm sure people would say. These are very important roles and positions we need today to meet people's needs. You know, I remember years ago, I was having lunch with somebody, and he was a believer, he is a believer, and he was just sharing some stuff about his life, and he shared to me that he's building this personal team up, and basically, these are people he needed for different things in his life. So he's like, hey, Roy, you know, um, I'm building up this personal team. And so I have an accountant. I have a lawyer. I have my personal physician. But you know what I need? I need a pastor. I need a pastor. So then he looked at me, and he, and he wasn't joking at all. But he's like, I want you to join my team. I'm like, uh, all right. <laughs> now, I was flattered that he invited me to join his team, quote, unquote, I didn't know what he meant by that exactly. I mean, did he want me to be his personal pastor? Am I, am I going to be on call all the time now? I mean, did he want me to move in and live with him? I, I don't know, right? What did that mean, be on his team? I never found out. <laughs> but anyway, these are the roles that people imagine. Okay, this is what I need in my life. Okay, I need an accountant. I need a lawyer. I need my doctor. Yeah, throw in a pastor too. Why not? But these are the things I need, but when God looked upon the Israelites, and when God even looks upon us today, this is what he says. You need a prophet, you need a priest, and you need a king. Really? Prophet, priest, and a king to rule over us? Not in this country. Heck no, right? So these are not the roles that people typically think of. And yet again, when you look at scripture, these are the three offices or roles that God absolutely said you need to meet your greatest needs. Okay, these are the things that my kingdom will provide. God's kingdom is his total answer to our total needs. In fact, the theologian in the 1600s named Francis Turretin, but he called these three offices, and I love this, but he called them the three cures or the three remedies for our three greatest problems. Okay, I love that. But these offices, they're more than just offices, things that you know, people did a long time ago, things that Jesus did a long time ago. But these are the remedies and the cures to our three greatest problems. So what problems are we talking about? Well, first, we're talking about the problem of the darkened mind, of the darkened mind. Second, our guilt before God. And then third, our bondage to sin. These are the most profound problems that we face in life, hands down. There's nothing in your life that is greater than these three things. They're actually crisis problems. They're desperately urgent problems, and they threaten us every day. But darkened mind, guilt before God, and bondage to sin. And no matter what people may do, no matter what people may go on to achieve in life, these are humanity's greatest problems. And because they are the greatest problems, they will continue to produce the greatest miseries in people's lives if they're not dealt with. They will. I don't care who you are, what you go on to do with your life. If these are not settled in your life, they will continuously plague you, threaten you, and make you miserable, and ultimately destroy you. They will destroy you, and that is not a hyperbole, right? I'm not exaggerating. So first, a darkened mind. Romans 1, 21, 22. Paul said, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And how did they know God? Through the creation. Paul says the creation is constantly pouring out speech day after day, night after night, that there is a creator. You know, lately I've been listening to a podcast between Christian scientists and atheistic scientists. I actually do that every now and then. And they're debating all the time about how creation points to a creator or no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. But the Bible's clear. Creation is pouring out speech that there is a God, that there is a creator. There are unanswerable questions, even with all the science we have. Okay, we cannot answer certain questions of where we came from. Okay, how did this universe come to be? We don't know. But the Bible is very clear. There is a God. So although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. See? Futile. That means no matter how much you think and think and think, it doesn't go anywhere. You can't solve anything. It's futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, 
they became fools. So this was Paul's indictment upon all of humanity. All of humanity has become foolish and darkened in their minds. Why? Because they rejected God, even though it's so obvious. It's so obvious. Okay, a single DNA strand. Technology has elucidated, figured out the structure. Amazing. I was a science major. That was my major. I had to look at DNA for like four years. But the DNA strand, right? Amazing. But you know what science can't tell you? Where did the information come from? It's a digital code. Where did that come from? The discoverer of DNA, Francis Crick, he actually even said, we don't know where it came from. I think aliens spawned it. That was his theory. Aliens seeded it, the information. But where did that information come from? So, that, so that's the rejection of God. Okay, we, we just reject God. No, God didn't create any of this. It's just, it's just random mutation. And because they do that, Paul says, your hearts are darkened. Your mind is futile. Now the mind is not destroyed by sin. It still functions. It can even be brilliant at times. But without God, the mind is now distorted. It's disordered. It cannot properly function the way God intends it. The mind cannot know the truths of God. That's the point. It's futile. The most important truths that we should know about reality itself, the most foundational things we need to understand about our lives, the mind, the unconverted mind cannot know it. So people may go to the best schools the world can offer. They can gain enormous amounts of knowledge, right? Today we have the internet, Google. They can become experts in a particular field. They can even affect the course of the world, right, with their ingenuity. I mean, Edison, discovering electricity. I mean, you can change the course of the world itself, but their most basic understanding of reality is off. Why? Because they've rejected the true basis for all reality, which is God. So, so think about that. The most foundational thing you can know about reality, they've rejected that. So then what happens? Everything is off. And not only that, but the tool by which you can measure everything, reality itself, the mind, that is also off. You know what that would be like? That would be like a construction company. They have beautiful blueprints. They have all the tools necessary to build a house. But the blueprint was drawn wrong. Not only that, but they have the, the measuring tapes, right? All the measuring instruments. But those things are off as well. So even though they have the best intentions, they're motivated, they have all the right materials, but once they start building it, what happens? Everything's off. Everything. Right? The blueprint is wrong. The measuring sticks are wrong. Everything is off. Regardless of how hard they try. And so the Bible says this is humanity. No matter how many great things people try to build in this world. For example, right now our culture is so big on building an equitable, just society. Okay, everywhere you look, that's what they talk about. Well, guess what? They're never going to get there because they have a faulty blueprint and their measuring instruments are all wrong. So even with the best intentions, I mean, do we want justice in our society? Absolutely. Do we want, you know, equity? Maybe not equity in the sense that they're defining it where everyone has equal outcomes. Okay, we don't, that's not possible. But we do want equality, right? We want justice, but they're never going to get there. Nothing is right because our foundation is off. This is also true at the individual level. Maybe all of you, all of us, we invest huge amounts of time and energy to try to build a good life for ourselves. Okay, we just want a house, we want a good career, we just want to go to school, okay, become something more. We invest a lot of time and energy. But once again, individuals, same thing. Their blueprint's completely wrong, and all their measuring instruments are off. And so even with the best intentions and the best support, the best resources imaginable, endless information at our fingertips, life just simply doesn't work just doesn't work. You know, this past week, I was kind of laughing when I shared this to Jill, but it's not, it's not a laughing matter, but Gen Z, okay, the youngest generation that's rising up now, graduating college, they said, this article said that Gen Z, they took a huge poll, survey of 10,000 Gen Zers. Okay, if you're one of them, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're one of them. But they said Gen Zers are more depressed than any other generation previously polled. And the reason why is because I, it was an astounding number. I forgot, Joe. Was it three out of four? I forget. But three out of four have a mental health crisis at least once in their lifetime. Many, some have many more. Why? Because they believe the world is going to come to an end because of climate crisis. Okay, that's what the Gen Zers are always worrying about. The world's coming to an end because of climate crisis. I'm not even here to debate whether that's true or not. I'm just simply saying they are struggling. They are depressed. 
even though they are the most technologically advanced generation. And so this is the darkened mind. No matter how hard they try, no matter how much resource they have, everything's off. The blueprint is wrong. The measuring tape is off. So a darkened mind, this is not a small problem, brothers and sisters. This is profound, right? Yeah, darkened mind is the first great problem. But there's another one, guilt before God, guilt before God, Romans 2, 3, and 5. These are all in Romans, by the way. The problem is so clearly laid out. Do you suppose, O man and woman, you who judge those who do such things, in other words, sin against God, reject God, those you who judge them, yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So because people are starting out with a darkened mind, there is almost no chance for them to understand this truth, that there is ultimate accountability in life. That's what judgment is ultimately. That you just can't live life any which way. But there is an ultimate accountability in life. Here's another way to say it. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. I don't know why, but earlier this year, I was reading a lot about Stalin. When you get to my age, you just get interested in dictators. I don't know why, but I just started reading about Stalin. I talk about Hitler with my friends. I don't know why. When you get you know, older, you know, like I'm becoming one of those old men who sit on the front porch and talk about world wars and dictators. Anyway, I was reading a lot on Stalin, listening to different podcasts, and Stalin killed 50 million people, and then on his deathbed, he died in his sleep. His daughter was the only one there, but she testified saying, my father died in his sleep. But before he died, he raised a fist to heaven, a defiant fist to heaven. Because at one point, he said he was a Christian. But it had been decades since he had rejected God. And he killed 50 million people, and he raised his fist to heaven, and then he died in his sleep. And people go, wow, where's the justice in that? And the Bible says, nobody gets away with anything. Stalin is paying for his sins, even today. Nobody gets away with anything. Martin Luther King, the civil rights leader, said, the long arc of history bends towards justice. Politicians love quoting that, and that's a good quote. I believe he got that from the Bible. But politicians love quoting that, and it is a good quote. It's a good thing. The long arc of history bends towards justice, and that is a good thing, but it can also be a horrible thing. This is what politicians don't seem to realize who like quoting that. That can actually be a very frightening thing if that justice ultimately comes down on your head because of your sins, if they are unrepented of, unforgiven. And that's a terrible thing, in fact. The long arc of history bends towards justice, and that justice comes down on your head. So people cannot accept this truth, even within the church. This is why many churches have done away with this idea of God's wrath. I mentioned that last week, but there are entire denominations that are doing it, doing it away. And this isn't recently. This has started even 100 years ago. A famous theologian, about 100 years ago, he said this about liberalism in the church. He said, they proclaim and worship a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So what kind of Christianity is that? But that's the Christianity a lot of people follow. And yet people, including non-believers, carry the weight and guilt of condemnation. So even though people might reject this, their darkened minds cannot fathom or, or understand this, and yet the reality is still there. Okay, that's what I'm saying. That reality is still there. So every human being, whether Christian or non-Christian, can sense this within themselves, that, that for some reason, no matter how much I try, I, I just fall short of a standard. Even if they're not able to explain with words, what that standard is, and where does that standard come from? I thought we're just matters in motion. I thought we're just matter and energy. So, so why do you always have this guilt upon you, this condemnation that you don't measure up? Is it just society? Well, then leave society. Go to an island. Well, I, I still feel like I, I don't measure up. Well, what is that? Well, I think that's just the internal reality, the truth that the Bible's talking about. That there is accountability. There is ultimate accountability for life. Nobody gets away with anything. Everybody is being measured to a, a law, a standard that we might not even be able to describe or know what it is. And yet it is there. Romans calls it our conscience. Our conscience. 
So this is our universal guilt before a holy God. Do you see it? how this is another huge, massive problem? This is massive, brothers and sisters. Massive. So not only do we have a darkened mind, everything's off, no matter how hard we try to build something good. We have this universal guilt before a holy God. Even if you don't believe in a God or reject everything in the Bible, you still sense it inside. You can't even put words to it, but it's there. But here's something else, and this is another big one. The bondage to sin. The bondage to sin. This is the third great problem. Romans 5, 12, 17. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Paul's saying that to Christians. Only Christians can obey that. Non-Christians cannot obey that. But the Christians, he said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So in those verses, the key word is reign. Okay, what is reign? Reign is a rule. Somebody is ruling over you. So sin and death are not just present in the world and in us, but they are reigning over us. In other words, they rule over us. They control us. They enslave us. They are like evil despots, dictators. Okay, this is the Bible's teaching on the human condition. So listen to how desperate Paul sounds when he thinks about his own struggle with sin. Okay, this is the greatest apostle who ever lived, second only to Jesus. But listen to his own sin. Romans 7, 19, for I do not do the good I want. How many of you guys can relate to that? He wrote this as a Christian. I don't do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, that is what I keep on doing. We can all understand that, right? I just don't do the good I know I should do. Whether you believe in the Bible or not, there's a standard, there's a conscience. I just don't do it all the time. And the wrong that I shouldn't do, I keep on doing that. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So this is Paul's experience. This is our experience. And of course, immediately after that, Paul answers his own question. Christ, who will deliver us from this body of death? Christ. And so this is the other great problem. The Bible points out, we have a darkened mind, we have this universal guilt before God, and then we have this enslavement to sin, no matter how hard we try, right? And by the way, I'll I'll mention this more later, but this is the relevance to Christianity. Okay, this is one of the easiest ways to share the gospel to somebody, because nowadays people, they just really struggle. They really struggle, like, why do you go to church? Why do you do that, right? Okay, why do you believe in this stuff, Christianity? Well, here's the easiest answer to give them. Here's why I'm a Christian, and here's why you should be one too. It's because you and I, we are enslaved to sin. They know it. They don't use those words. They might not say it like that, but they know it. You can't do the good you know you should do. You know you fall short all the time. Well, so do I. And you will live your entire life looking for a cure for that. You will live your entire life looking for freedom from that. You will not find it. There's only one place, Jesus Christ, amen? That's why I'm a Christian. That's the easiest way to share the gospel because they immediately know what that means. They immediately can connect with that. Oh, okay. (laughs) They'll still reject it unless God has mercy on them. But this is the three greatest problems that we all face. So a darkened mind, guilt before a holy God, and bondage to sin. And what was God's solution for ancient Israel? What did he offer them within his kingdom? His theocratic nation that he built, it was the three offices, a prophet, priest, and king. Do you understand now how important these roles are? So the prophet is someone who brought light of God's word to the darkened mind. They continuously came and preached and proclaimed the word of God that would bring light to a darkened mind. The priest was someone who would offer sacrifices and intercede for them to take away the guilt, the universal guilt within them, the guilt of their sin. And to find the king was someone who could free them from the tyranny of evil and bring order to their lives and provision and protection. For the first time, you're not being ruled by something terrible, but you could be ruled by something good, a good and righteous king. So this was God's solution. This was God's vision. And so now, we go back to Paul's cry. Oh, what a wretched wretched people we are, right? Living in a wretched world. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Well, the answer is Christ. It's Christ. 
because when you go back to ancient Israel, even though God had this amazing vision of solving the three greatest problems for the Israelites, what was the reality? What really happened? Once God started sending prophets and priests and kings to them, one by one, the prophets fell. The priests committed adultery. The kings were wicked. One by one, they kept falling. They failed. And so again, oh, what a wretched people we are. Who will deliver us? The answer is Christ. So here's the second point. Christ is the final fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet, priest, and king. He's the final fulfillment. The three persons in the Old Testament has now become one. The three have become one. Jesus is the perfect prophet. He is the perfect priest, and he is the perfect king. So every Old Testament prophet, priest, and king was an incomplete picture that Jesus completes. So this was God's plan all along. I believe this is what every human being longs for. Every human being longs for just somebody to come and and do what we can't do. For somebody to come and be our example and to show us and to do and solve the problems that we cannot solve. And I remember one time a professor from Talbot came and spoke at our church. And he shared about Aristotle and the Greek philosophers. And I remember this. I'll never forget it. But he said, it's so strange, but the Greek philosophers, Aristotle in particular, he wrote a lot about the ideal man. And if you read his writings, he longed for this ideal man to come and show all of us how we should live. And, and they just longed for this ideal person to show up. Oh, if there, was, if there would be a man like that to follow. So that's kind of strange, right? These pagan philosophers, long before Jesus showed up, just longing for this. You know, I heard this more recently, but how many of you guys listen to podcasts? But there's a popular podcast that's becoming more popular, Lex Friedman. He's kind of like Joe Rogan, but kind of a little bit weirder. <laughs> but Lex Friedman, he looks like he's, uh, he just walked off the cast of Men in Black, the movie Men in Black. But he always wears a black suit with a skinny black tie. He talks in a monotone. I think he's like a Russian-American computer scientist. Decided to start a podcast. But Lex Friedman, he was uh, interviewing uh, this Russian historian about Stalin. They're Stalin again. <laughs> but anyway, I was watching this. And so they're talking about Stalin, right, and, and how many people he killed and how much suffering he brought. And it was so interesting. But at that, in that podcast, Friedman, almost kind of wondering out loud, thinking out loud. It was very strange. But Friedman said, and he's not a Christian, by the way. He basically said, oh, but if there could just be this perfect leader, if there could just be this ideal person, this strong leader who would show up and we could all just follow him. And I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> be careful there. Sounds like you're ready for the Antichrist. But it's like, oh, if, if there could just be a, a perfect leader to rise up and just lead us all and to just show us the way. But that was so interesting when I heard that. Because I believe that impulse is inside everyone. If there could just be a person who could show us the way and solve all of our problems. Well, I believe God put that impulse in us because God eventually intended to send that person. And you know who he is. His son, Jesus Christ, who would be the perfect prophet, priest, and king who came to solve our greatest and deepest problems. So this is the Christmas story. This is the Christmas story. So you know what? For the sake of time, I can't believe there's only 10 minutes left. (laughs) I'm only halfway through the message. Okay, what am I going to do? I'm only halfway through. Okay. <laughs> Dude, there's only 10 minutes left. Okay. Did I take that long in the first point? Okay. So first, okay, let's just run through this. <laughs> okay, in the Old Testament, the prophet, priest, and king were marked out for a special purpose. How? By being anointed. They were all anointed by God. It was symbolically represented by oil being poured onto them. And so how did the New Testament describe Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of all three offices? Because he was anointed. It keeps saying that. He was the anointed one. He was the anointed one. In fact, his very last name, Christ is not really his last name, but Christ means the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. Messiah, Meshiach, it means the anointed one. So the New Testament keeps referring to Jesus as the anointed one. Why? Well, I believe here's one reason why. It's because Jesus took the three anointed roles in the Old Testament. All of them were marked out by anointing. The king was anointed, the priests, and the prophets. And then Jesus took all of them, and he became all of them. So he was the anointed one times three. He was triply. Is that a word, triply? 
He was triply anointed. So this was Jesus. So first, Jesus is our perfect prophet. I'm just going to have to run through this. Okay, Acts 3, 21, 22. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stood up, and he said, Jesus, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So what is Peter saying? He's just quoting Deuteronomy 18.18. He's like, let me tell you about Jesus. Moses talked about him. He prophesied there would be a prophet that would rise up amongst the Jewish people. And so Moses was right. Jesus appeared as a premier prophet. So all through his ministry, the crowds acknowledged that. The crowds repeatedly acknowledged Jesus as a prophet. They often said no one ever spoke like he spoke. He speaks with authority. See, he was a prophet. The Samaritan woman, John 4, said, I perceive you are a prophet. Even Jesus himself referred to himself as a prophet. He said, we must go to Jerusalem because no prophet ever dies outside of Jerusalem, talking about himself. And he said that sarcastically, right? All the prophets are killed inside Jerusalem, so we should go there too. I'm going to be killed there. And so he was a prophet, and what did what did he do as a prophet? He brought light. So this is another thing we repeatedly see in the New Testament. But talking about Jesus' birth, John said the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. When Jesus walked into a certain region and gap, I am the light of the world. I am the light. And what is light? Light is truth. It is truth. It is the light of God's word. Okay, what happens when you flick on a light switch in a dark room? You see and we know we're not talking about physical sight here. We're talking about mental sight, spiritual sight. Remember the darkened mind? You just don't see things. The most important things about reality, you just don't see it. Well, suddenly you see. There's clarity. You see reality as it really is. The blueprint now is correct. Your measuring instruments are correct. Not only that, light does what? It brings life. There's a connection between light and life. So these are all the things that Jesus brought as a prophet. He was the premier prophet, the perfect prophet. He came and spoke God's word. He brought incredible light to his people to darken minds. And through that, there was incredible light that began to pour out of his ministry. See, he was the perfect prophet. And for people who have lived in darkness entire lives, I don't even think they can even fathom what it's like to have a mind that is no longer dark. They don't even know what that's like. You know, I remember coming across this list of a darkened mind. Al Mohler, he's a Bible scholar, theologian, but he um, came up with this list. But here's a list of all the effects of sin on the mind. But people who don't know Christ, who have never experienced the light of his truth, they don't even know what that's like because, first of all, there's ignorance in a fallen mind, darkened mind. There's ignorance, distractedness, forgetfulness, prejudice, faulty perspective, Intellectual fatigue, in other words, you get tired studying stuff, you give up. Inconsistencies, failure to draw the right conclusions. Intellectual apathy, you just don't care. Dogmatism, you care too much about the wrong things. Closed-mindedness, intellectual pride, vain imaginations, miscommunication, partial knowledge. I mean, it's a long list. But this is what a darkened mind is. And people who are just in the grip of that, they, they can't even imagine what it's like to not have that. But this is what the New Testament says. When Christ came, he was a prophet. And he brought the truth of God's word and he brought light to your darkened minds. So he was the perfect prophet. Next, he was the perfect priest. Hebrews 5, 5 through 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there, I love it, how the New Testament confirms the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, which we read earlier. The writer of Hebrews is saying, remember what David prophesied? Remember that? Psalm 110? Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus fulfilled it. So he is the perfect priest. Far superior than any other priest. Because the priests in both the Old and New Testament offer sacrifices for people's sins, but they also did what? Offer sacrifices for their own sin. Because they themselves were sinners. So their sacrifices could take away no one's sin, let alone their own. And it had to go on day after day, month after month, year after year. It never ended. 
because they couldn't substitute for anything, right? They sacrificed for their own sin and for everyone else's sin, and they kept sinning. And so even though these sacrifices were done in obedience to God, they were ineffective. That's the point. And yet the New Testament is so clear. When the perfect priest came, his sacrifice was effective. Why? Because he was not just the priest. He was also the sacrifice. He was, both, he was on both sides. And Jesus, as the perfect priest, didn't have to sacrifice for himself. He had no sin. So this sacrifice could be 100% for other people, for all of us. And that sacrifice wasn't a goat or a lamb, which really was just symbolic. It was himself. He took our place. So what does all of this mean? His sacrifice was enough. It was complete. It was effective. So after he brought his sacrifice, it was finished. See, he's the perfect high priest. And so have you ever experienced that forgiveness? I mentioned earlier, one of our deepest problems is that universal guilt we all have. Okay, I just don't measure up. I'm condemned. Have you experienced that freedom? Okay, you need to come to Christ. Okay, let's run through this. Okay, we're going to come to an end. Jesus is also our perfect king, Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So even pagan astrologers, these wise men, said, We know your Bible better than you do. There's a king that was born. Where is he? Where's the king of the Jews? So Jesus was not only the perfect prophet, priest, but he was a king, the perfect king. And why was he so perfect? Because everything he did in his authority was for the benefit of his people. See, the unrighteous kings in the Old Testament, they did it for themselves. They abused the people. They were selfish. They were wicked. But everything Jesus did in his authority was for the benefit of us. And so he was a servant king. And not only that, but he was the victorious king. He overcame our greatest enemy, which is our very own sin and Satan in the world itself. He was victorious. And so, I'm so sorry, we're going to have to pull this to an end here. But Hebrews 1, I love this, and it's not in the uh, notes, it's not up on the screen, because I just came across it earlier this morning. But Hebrews 1, the first three verses, ties it all together. It's just amazing how the Bible does this. But Jesus is mentioned as prophet, priest, and king in the first three verses. Hebrews 1, long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, he's a prophet. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And then listen, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then listen, after making purification for sins, he's the perfect priest. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the perfect king. Do you see that? All three, right there in the first opening verses. So Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king who solves our deepest problems. And so we're going to bring this to a close right now in five minutes. But it doesn't end there, right? This, this is where the Bible just, the more you study it, the more it just blows your mind. But this continues on. There is an ongoing work of prophet, priest, and king. Because now Jesus has gathered, after dying and rising, he's gathering a people that he is the head of. That's all of us, the church. And so now Jesus, through the church, is working as prophet, priest, and king. So what does that mean? The church also serves in these three roles as prophet, priest, and king. And so how many guys have heard about having your identity in Christ? There's a lot of talk about being you know, rooted in Christ, your identity in Christ, and we kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, and it's kind of like this generic thing. Oh, yeah, Jesus. I know Jesus. My identity's kind of in him, I guess. I love Jesus. But I want to encourage you, get more specific. Okay, you need to have this strong, clear identity in Christ. How? By having your identity as a prophet like Christ, as a priest like Christ, and as a king like Christ. He is the ultimate one. We'll never be like him, but we are in the mold of him, right? So your identity in Christ is something more specific than, oh, I just love Jesus and I kind of know Jesus. Is you are also a prophet like him. A prophet like him. Look at Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them 
to observe everything I've commanded you. That's the call of a prophet. Now, I'm not denying that there's a spiritual gift of prophecy. The Bible says earnestly desire that. I encourage you. If the Bible said it, do it. Pray and ask God, God, give me the gift of prophecy. It's going to come through the word of God. But I'm not talking about that. Okay, only some people in the church have that. I'm talking about something all of us have, which is you can study the word of God, and then you can teach it and share it with others, and that is what a prophet does. They bring the word of God to people. Jesus commanded us to do that. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. You're a prophet. Your identity should be in that. Not only that, you're a priest. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. But I'm not going to die for people, right? I'm not going to go on a cross. So what does that mean? I'm not going to sacrifice a goat either. So how am I a priest? Well, what does a priest do? What is Jesus doing right now? One role of a priest was to intercede for the people. You're bringing the people before God through prayer. So do you pray for others? When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you closed the door in your room, got on your knees and said, God, I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes praying for other people, not just my problems, the things I want, but God, please help the church, help my pastor, okay? He seems to be kind of, <laughs> I don't know, going in a different direction these days or whatever. I'm not, I'm not. I'm just saying, <laughs> hypothetically. Pray, right? Pray for people. Pray for your community group. Pray for your family members. Pray. Okay, you're a priest. What's another way you could be a priest? By sacrificing yourself, not literally, not that, but sacrificing yourself in order to draw others closer to God. Can you do that? Yeah. You're being a priest. You're offering yourselves, Romans 12.1, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. How do you do that? By giving up your time, your resources, the things you want, giving them up so that other people can draw near to God. You're being a priest, amen? So when's the last time you've done that? I want to encourage you, maybe this Advent season, ask God for ways to do that. And then finally, king. Yes, you are royalty. Ephesians 2, 4, and 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, raised us up with him and seated us where? With him in the heavenly places. And where's Jesus? On the throne? It's a pretty big throne. <laughs> a million, a million person love seat, right? <laughs> it's going to be, we're all on the throne. I mean, this is a figure of speech, obviously. But we are all going to rule and reign over the new heavens and new earth. As royalty, as princes and princesses, as kings and queens of the most high. And so how, how do we begin to live this out here? Well, again, it's not to order people around. It's not to use your authority to abuse people, but it's to serve. Jesus was the perfect king because he used his authority to serve. So when's the last time you used your abilities, your skills to bring order, to serve people by bringing order in their lives? Hey, man, dude, finals are coming up and you haven't even begun to read the reading? You don't even know where the syllabus is? <laughs> right? You, you, you step in there, you bring order. Okay, here's my syllabus. I copied it. Take it. Okay, here's the reading. Study this. We're going to do it together. Whatever it may be. Or here at church, oh my gosh, this ministry, like you don't even know where the supplies are. Okay, here's an Excel sheet. Okay, here are the boxes where you can put all the supplies. You're going to bring order. You're going to administrate. You're going to use your abilities to serve and to bring order and at times even to protect, even to defend. And as we do that, you are a king. You are a queen. And so this is who Jesus is and now this is who we are. So do you see how rich this is? So the Advent story is so much more than, oh yeah, Jesus came as a little baby, so cute, and he died for me, I love him. You know, he's kind of like my friend in my head. It's so much more than that, brothers and sisters. The most profound problems that you face, existential crises in your life, Jesus has solved. And now, as you step into those same roles, you can help now solve in the world, amen? Okay, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord. We just come before you. During this Advent season, we just come before you humbly. And we ask that you would teach us, Father, that we would have a deeper understanding of what you came to do. Lord, your ministry is amazing. You are wonderful. For all eternity, we're going to gaze at who you are and what you came to do. 
and we're going to be amazed that though you are the creator of heaven and earth, you came down here, but you didn't just come to give us a few good teachings, but Lord, you came as prophet, priest, and king. The ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And you solved the greatest problems in our lives. And now you have called us to walk in the same offices as you, the same roles, and begin to bring other people into the same solutions.